Today we are in our final sermon in a series on the book of 2 Peter, or the letter of 2 Peter. And it's funny, I, you know, I go away usually once a year for about a week, and I do sermon planning for the entire year. And so it's interesting, you look at uh, basically a potential series or a book like this, and you think, all right, I'm going to break it up into these chapters and these sections. And one of the things that I learned in uh, preaching through 2 Peter is that, man, I badly, badly underestimated just how much material was in here. And so all we're really doing is sort of skipping a rock across the top of 2 Peter and giving you a few different things that he's talking about there. Um, again, just to set the stage, and Emily Kalin mentioned it this morning, but 2 Peter is written by Peter. That's the apostle that walked with Jesus for three years. And he's imprisoned in Rome because of his faith in Christ. He knows that he's getting ready to be put to death by Nero for his faith, and he's writing to his audience, and he's basically encouraging them to remain faithful, and he's basically saying, hey, look, there are going to be and are plenty of external threats. Those are going to be governmental threats. They're going to be cultural threats that threaten to actually really harm you physically, but there are also internal threats. In other words, there's false teaching that is making its way into the church in the form of this, something we would call proto-Gnosticism, which basically taught that the flesh is bad, but that spiritual stuff is good, and that the you know, physical stuff doesn't really matter. And so part of what that did is it basically, uh, that proto-Gnosticism, that false teaching, basically uh, taught Jesus isn't really coming back again. And not only that, you can live however you want to physically because that doesn't really matter. And Peter is writing this letter to the people, and he's basically saying, hey, hold strong, withstand um, the temptations to give in to both these external and internal threats. Today, we're actually going to be looking at the very last chapter of 2 Peter chapter 3. But before we jump into that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for um, these words that are 2,000 years old now. And Father, I pray that um, as we read your word to us, that we would be reminded as well that we are called to be faithful to you and that we are called to stand strong against these external and internal threats that we also face, Father. So we ask that you would give us your spirit. We ask, Father, that you would uh, surround us with fellow believers who help us to be strong. And, uh, Father, I just ask that you would help us to see clearly what it is that we are standing against um, and who we are standing for. Father, we pray all of these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So many of you in this room probably remember first beginning to read. And depending on how old you were when you were beginning to read would determine which of those first little um, sort of thick books you used to read. Many of you grew up with a book, um, learning to read, called Fun with Dick and Jane. I don't know if you guys remember this little book, Fun with Dick and Jane, but some of the key lines were, see Dick run, look Jane look. There's all sorts of very, very simple stuff. It was written, I think, back in the late 30s, and it's really a cute little book. You can find it online. Well, in the 50s, really sort of in the late 50s, um, uh, literacy began to decline a little bit in the U.S., and as a result, Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, decided that he would write a book that would be more engaging to young would-be readers. What he came up with was a book called The Cat in the Hat. Maybe you've heard of it. The story goes that Geisel looked at the word list, so he looked at the, the recommended word list for kids learning to read, and he wrote a story based upon the two rhyming, first rhyming words that he came across, cat and hat. Now, amazingly, almost 65 years later, it's safe to say that Geisel's book was quite the success. I can still remember reading The Cat in, a, in the Hat as a child. It was the first book to make me feel a low level of anxiety. It, it, I'm not joking. Maybe that says more about me than the book. I don't know. 
But if you remember, the book begins with Sally and Sam. They're stuck at home on a rainy day. Their mother's out and they are incredibly bored. Now, this is the kind of boredom that could only exist before there was Netflix and before there were iPads and technology. You literally had to sit there sometimes and do nothing, okay? And so they're bored, and they hear a knock on the door, and an eccentric stranger barges in. It's a cat wearing a hat. His message to them was they can still have fun, even on a rainy day. Sally and Sam are thrilled, but if you remember from the story, the pet goldfish is very suspicious of this stranger. Sally and Sam, however, ignore the goldfish, and they proceed to make a mess, playing games led by the cat in the hat around the house. The goldfish protests even more and more, but the kids are having too much fun to notice the house gets messier and messier. The cat in the hat then ups the drama by introducing thing one and thing two, who create even more havoc. They fly a kite in the house and they destroy everything. And at this point, the kids themselves begin to get worried. They know that their mom is going to be home before too long. So Sam catches the things, locks them back in their box, and he sends them, along with the cat in the hat, away. They're then left with a giant mess to clean up, knowing that their mom is going to be home at any minute. See, that's the anxiety. (laughs) There's a knock on the door, and the remorseful cat offers a solution to rescue them from their predicament, a magic machine with many arms that will pick up the mess for them. He sets it loose, and sure enough, the books, plates, cups, And even the goldfish are back in their place, just as their mother pulls up out front. The cat sneaks out the back. Their mother walks in the front, and she asks the children what they did while she was out. The children are hesitant, and they don't answer. The story ends with the question, what would you do if your mother asked you? Now, clearly, the cat in the hat, this little story, works on several different levels. It has great artwork. It has great poetry that even children can understand. There's symbolism that's actually interwoven into the story. But the reason it worked for me as a kid, again, was the tension that it created. Should they have let this stranger in when their mother was out? Uh, No. The answer is no, you don't do that. (laughs) Would the house get cleaned before she arrived? In the real world, probably not. Would they get in trouble when she got home? Should they even tell their mom what happened while she was gone? Right? All this tension, all this anxiety. Now here, in 2 Peter 3 today, Jesus remi- or Peter reminds his readers that they should live life in light of Jesus' return. In other words, Jesus is coming back, therefore you need to live your life in very particular ways. Now Peter uses the term, the day of the Lord, to describe Jesus' arrival. And on that day, there's judgment of evil, but there's also hope that God's people will be rescued and redeemed. Again, Emily read about that this morning. So how then should they live? How then should we live in light of Jesus' return? Let's read and see what Peter has to say in chapter 3. This is a long passage of Scripture. I would ask that you bear with me. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In light of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water, 
by the word of God. In other words, what Peter is saying is God spoke, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Not only did God speak and create the world, but he spoke and brought punishment. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief." And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything will be laid bare. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that people will twist these scriptures, take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen long chapter. What do we see in 2 Peter chapter 3 about the implications of Jesus' return of this day of the Lord? First thing we see Peter saying is, because Jesus is returning, we must stay focused. We must stay focused. Look at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, there's some discrepancy here about the translation of the phrase, sincere mind, This is the ESV that we just read. The NIV seems to say something slightly different than the ESV, translating the Greek phrase as wholesome thinking. It seems that the authors of the NIV are focusing on moral purity of thought. In the message, however, Eugene Peterson translates this phrase similarly to the ESV, saying this, hold your minds in a state of undistracted attention. So which is it? Which one is it? The answer is it's actually both. Taken really literally, the two Greek words would be translated something like uncontaminated deep thought, uncontaminated deep thought. Interestingly, the word translated uncontaminated is a Greek word that is a combination of the words for son and judge. In other words, it means to judge something by holding it up to the light. When I was eight, my family moved from Greenville, South Carolina to Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, Uh, For us Romans, that would be the equivalent of moving from Old East Rome to somewhere out on some land in Armurchie. We lived in a little valley on the backside of Paris Mountain. There was a cow pasture directly across the road. We had apple trees and scuppinon vines. Scuppinons are these little grapey things. When they get rotten, you can throw them at your friends. They're great. 
I spent most of my summers as a kid, however, down in the creek catching crawdads and creek chubs, these little bitty fish. It was a typical little mountain creek. It was crystal clear in parts when it flowed fast over rocks, but in other places it, it sort of gathered into deep pools. At first glance, the water appeared to be perfectly good to drink to someone who is naive and thirsty on a hot summer day. However, if you were to scoop up some of that water in a mason jar and hold it up to the sun, you would see just how contaminated it actually was. In fact, you'd probably see a few of these little guys right here. That is a sea monkey. And you do not want to drink one of those out of a mountain stream. You'll lose weight, but it will come at a cost. <laughs> so what is Peter getting at? I think what Peter is saying is that in light of Jesus' inevitable return, our thinking should be crystal clear, unpolluted. You've probably experienced that clarity of thought on a few different occasions in your life. Maybe it was sitting at the beach in the evening looking out over the waves as the sun set. Maybe it was sitting on a mountaintop in Colorado after a long day's hike. Maybe it was after a diagnosis of cancer. At those moments, the complexities of life can actually become pretty simple, and you can see clearly. In those moments, you know automatically what is important and what is not important. You know what is real, and you know what is false. I think that's what Peter is getting at here. He's getting ready to be put to death, as we've mentioned already a couple of times. Real life and death persecution of Christians is only the beginning False teachers and false teachings are infiltrating the church, but Peter says Jesus is coming back, so he wants the children of God to be clear-headed, to be clear-thinking, to be uncontaminated in their thought. He wants them to hold things up to the light, and in the midst of all of that, he wants them to remember what's most important, and he wants them to remember exactly what is true. He wants that for you and for me as well, and so because Jesus is returning, we are to stay focused, to be clear-headed. But Peter then has a, a second admonition. He reminds his readers that because Jesus is returning, we must also be patient. And so verses 8 and 9 talk about this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So clearly, every single one of us are a little bit impatient at various times. Some of us can't wait to graduate, whether it's from high school or college. Some of us can't wait to get married, or we can't wait for Christmas to get here. Often we wish away the days in between the current moment and the thing that we're pining for of course, time flows very, very differently for different people. When you're a child, summer vacation seems magically eternal. Just read Calvin and Hobbes. He does a great job of capturing that. Or getting sent to your room for 30 minutes also feels eternal, but not in a good way. When you're an adult, everything goes by so much more quickly. Your kids are grown and they're out of the house before you even know it. Christmas feels like it's going to be here tomorrow, and 30 minutes of alone time in your room seems like nothing. Kristen and I watched a movie the other night called Date Night. In it, um, it's uh, one of the characters, um, he was talking about one fantasy that he had, and he had this, like, crush on Cindy Lauper. And his wife was like, ew, really? And, um, and he said, well, don't you have a weird fantasy? And she goes, yeah. She said, my fantasy is to have one night in a hotel room, alone, 
with no children touching me, and I'm just drinking a diet Sprite. <laughs> like, you know you're a mom when that's your, you know, anyway. So we are a little impatient at times. Here, Peter references Psalm 90 in order to speak of how differently we finite human beings experience time compared to God. What feels like forever for you and me is just a moment for the eternal God of the universe. These believers are being persecuted and they face even greater persecution in the future. They were living in a world where 25% of children didn't even make it past their first year of life and where 50% of children didn't make it past the age of 18. The rate of mothers dying in childbirth was sky high, war, disease, famine. It's no wonder that these believers were impatient for the return of Jesus. Peter responds by reminding them of how differently God conceives of time compared to them. But he also implores them to be patient by telling them that God is actually up to something. Peter writes this in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's plan always involves and is always motivated by a desire to see people enter into a saving relationship with him through Jesus. Remember, that is exactly why Jesus came. When Jesus responded to the cranky and judgmental religious people um, of his day, when Zacchaeus repented and became a follower of Jesus, he said, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Like Peter's audience, we too need to be patient, remembering that Jesus is returning. In the meantime, however, let's not forget that God is at work. He's drawing people to himself. That's what he's up to. We not only need to be patient, however, we also need to be involved. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The message and the ministry of reconciliation is not just for people in young life. It's not just for people in campus outreach, the ministry of reconciliation is for all of those people who are new creations in Christ. In other words, most of us in this room. Let me give you some one quick and simple piece of action item. If you don't know where to begin, do this. Start by making a list of five people to pray for. Pray that God would draw them to himself and pray that he would involve you in that process somehow, that you would be involved in this ministry of reconciliation with friends, with families, with co-workers. Just start by praying for those five people, and then I'd love for you to let me know how it goes. So, Jesus is returning, therefore stay focused, be clear-headed. And then, since Jesus is returning, be patient. He has a purpose, so do we. Then finally, we'll look at one more point that Peter makes here. He says this, because Jesus is returning, we must live lives of goodness. Look at verses 11 and 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. At this point, Peter gives some very clear advice 
of how believers should live in light of the coming judgment, in light of the new heavens and the new earth, and of course, the return of Jesus. He uses the following descriptors. He says, holy, godly, without spot, blemish, and at peace. When we think about holiness, we, we typically think about moral purity, and that's definitely part of the intent of the word, but literally the word hagios means to be set apart. So when Kristen and I got married, she put a wedding ring on my finger that set me apart as belonging to her. And because I've been set apart for Krista, I belong to her, and not just that, but I am to live like it. I choose her above all other humans. I want to know what pleases her, eating healthy, hiking, camping, exercising. And I also want to know what displeases her, judgmentalism, gossip, slander, making assumptions about people without knowing all the facts. The same goes for God. We should be primarily concerned about being set apart to Him and about living our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. That's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The word translated, uh, the ESV translates as godliness, is eusebia. It's made up of two words, eu, which means good, and sebomai, which means venerate or veneration and honor. In English, we have the word eulogy, which is similar uh, it means good word. You say that at someone's funeral, you and logia. In this case, eusebia definitely means godliness, but perhaps the most literal understanding of this word is, would be something like good honor. In other words, we are to live lives of good honor towards God. Think about standing for the national anthem or standing for a bride when she enters the sanctuary. Because Jesus is returning, we are to live lives that honor God. Next two descriptors, without spot or blemish, add even more color to the prior concepts of being set apart for God and honoring Him. Without spot means to be unstained, and without blemish essentially means to be blameless. Taken uh, as one idea, the intent is clear. We are to be the opposite of the false teachers who, if you remember, are using their false teachings to indulge in sexual sin. You may recall what Peter said about them in 2 Peter 2, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. It seems likely then what Peter is thinking of here is sexual purity. We are to remember that we're set apart to God, for God. We are to live with good honor towards God, and we are to practice sexual purity. Finally, Peter says that because of judgment and because of Jesus' return, we are to be found at peace. Now, this is a little tricky because this could mean at peace with our fellow human beings. Surely that's somewhat true in Scripture. It could mean being at peace with God. Surely that's a, a function of the gospel. But in light of the context, I think that Peter actually means it more generally, more broadly. Because God will create a new heavens and a new earth that will be incorruptible by sin and death. And because Jesus is returning to rescue us, to make everything new, to redeem everything, be at peace. When I was diagnosed with cancer 20 months ago, I had to wrestle with the very real possibility of death on a daily basis. I had to wrestle with what that would mean for Krista and what it would mean for my kids. And during those days of not knowing the severity of my cancer, one of the truest and deepest feelings that I experienced in that time was peace. It was a peace that came from knowing the good news. God is good. God loves me. He's in charge. 
He has a plan in which even my cancer makes sense, and he is making all things new. Jesus came to redeem us, and he will come. He is coming again to restore the brokenness of this world, and because all of that is true, we can have a peace that passes all understanding. So let me pause here for a moment and just acknowledge something. So far, there's been a lot of being and there's been a lot of doing. Be patient, stay focused, be holy, be at peace. But remember, however, that the gospel isn't about what we do, but is instead about what has been done for us. It's good news, not good advice. So what is the good news in this passage? The good news, in fact, the best news, is that we are loved. Over and over again in this final chapter, Peter reminds his readers and he reminds us that we, that they, are loved by God. Look at these verses. Verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day, the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent and be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. It's worth noting here that Peter walked with Jesus for three years. For three years he was with Jesus, day in, day out. And after those three years of hearing Jesus teach, of watching Jesus perform miracles, and ultimately seeing Jesus willingly engage the suffering and death of the cross, what Peter walked away with was the knowledge that we are loved by God. And by the way, this isn't just some sort of pie-in-the-sky theology. Peter isn't some megachurch pastor sitting in his cushy office telling people what they want to hear. Peter isn't some junior high youth pastor trying to make God seem a little bit less scary to a bunch of impressionable youths. Remember, Peter is writing this letter from prison in Rome where he is about to be put to death by Nero precisely because of his fidelity to Jesus. At that moment, Peter chooses to remind us that God loves us. As I sat writing this section on Friday morning, when I came to this point, I teared up. There's so much that we don't know and there's so much we don't understand. Predestination, hell, where brokenness came from and how deeply brokenness runs. But the one thing that we can know from Scripture is that as children of God, we are loved. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of our doubts, in spite of our fears, in spite of our failings, we are, as Peter writes, beloved by God. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, even 2,000 years later, it can cut through the fog and can act as a light for us to be able to see who you are as our Father, who your Son Jesus is as our Savior, who we are um, as broken people, and who you are making us to be, Father, that you're redeeming us and that you're renewing us. And so, Father, I pray that we would live our lives in light of those things that are true. Father, I pray that we would hold our lives and our beliefs up to the light. And Father, I pray that you would enable us to see and to know and to believe and to live out of what is true about you and what is true about us and what is true about what you're coming to do. In Jesus' name we pray.